Thank you and welcome to uh, McKenzie on bass and Jack on the drums today. Some new folks with us, so appreciate you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, y'all. Does anybody need to get rid of one of these? Do you, do you feel rejected? I mean, I do. I, I do. I feel rejected. You know, I think about for 12 years, we've been, we've been cheering for, for Freddie, and I'm thinking about Sawyer, my 12-year-old son. He is the only first baseman that my son has ever known for the Braves for the last 12 years. And we rooted for him when he was in his slumps, right? We rooted for him when he got COVID. We were like, man, I hope he's going to make it out of that, you know? And we, we, rooted through, we voted for him. I went online and put his name in the all-star ballots on, you know, all 12 years, right? And we celebrated in the playoffs and the winning. When they won the World Series, we celebrated. And remember the parade? We celebrated with Freddie. We celebrated with you in the parade. And Dansby and those other guys, what did they say? Sign Freddie. And we go, yeah, sign Freddie. And he signed with the Dodgers. So I feel rejected. Was it about the money? Was it about the town he grew up in? And here's another question. So when, he, when in June, when the, when the Dodgers come to town, are we going to boo him? I know, I have to think about that for a while. Because <laughs> I, I really like Freddie, but man, I'm, I feel rejected. And you know what? Rejection is part of life, isn't it? We all understand that. We've all experienced it. And it hurts. We take it personally when we or something we've done or created or been a part of is rejected. We feel that. And even when people say, oh, it's not personal. Or they say, don't take it personal. Well, I can't help but take it personal because it is personal, right? We all understand that. And according to a, a Reuters article, um, that kicked in the gut feeling that we experience that comes with rejection, it, it generates even some physical symptoms. The article states, brain imaging studies show that a social snub actually affects the brain precisely in the same way of that visceral pain does. Think about that for a minute. Somebody's like, yeah, I know that. When someone hurts your feelings, it really hurts you, doesn't it? Matt Lieberman, who's a social psychologist at UCLA and worked on this study, and he said they took 13 volunteers and they were given a task they did not know related to an experiment in social snubbing. They didn't know this. But writing in the Journal of Science, Lieberman and another researcher, Naomi Eisenberger, said the brains of all 13 volunteers lit up when they were rejected in virtually the same way as a person experiencing physical pain. Think about that. And again, some of y'all are like, yeah, it does hurt. You actually experience physical pain. And we've heard of metaphors to describe the way we feel, like a broken heart or hurt feelings. And basically, science is saying there's a good reason for those metaphors because they actually describe how we feel. Now, last week, we looked at how the soldiers who were a part of uh, crucifying Jesus, how they had become indifferent to crucifixion and to death because they had been around it for so long. And we uh, noticed that in the process of crucifying another criminal, they didn't really realize who Jesus, they missed who Jesus really was and what he really did for them and for all of humanity on that cross. 
And so we too can allow the hardships of our life to make us indifferent to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So we're going to continue this series we've been doing called The Road to Resurrection. And in our Sunday school classes and with our student ministry and with our adult classes, we're doing something called the Easter Experience. And we're trying to, as we go through this Lenten season of 40 days from Ash Wednesday all the way to Resurrection Sunday is, is trying to focus on Jesus and why he had to come, why he had to die on that cross and ultimately had to rise again to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But uh, we're going to look today specifically at how and why Jesus was rejected. And he felt that same rejection that we do as humans because he was human. And in the Old Testament, we certainly read about rejection. It's nothing new. Rejection of God's covenant repeatedly happened. God chose the Israelites to be the people that he worked through, that he reflected who he was to the rest of the world. And time after time, we read in this cyclical way in the Old Testament of how the people you know, rejected God's covenant and went their own way. And we see that God expressed his anger, but also God's hurt. He talked about like, you're my children. You're like my wayward wife that has rejected me. And God felt that pain. And in 1 Samuel 8, God is uh, telling Samuel that the people decided they wanted a king, a, a physical earthly king. And all those in the regions around them had kings. They said, we want a king. We know we have Samuel as a, as a priest, but we want a king. And Samuel was so disappointed. And God said... To Samuel, he says, it's not you they've rejected, Samuel. It's not you they've rejected, but it is me. They have rejected me. Their God is their king. And God felt that pain. And God understands that rejection. And he feels the pain of rejection, whether it's us or somebody else. And it makes it even more amazing when he felt that pain throughout all of the Old Testament in that old covenant. And yet he wanted to establish a new covenant in his son, knowing that, guess what? That would be rejected too by some people. They would reject that love that he was trying to share with them and would save with them. Let's look at this morning at Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark, in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 15 and verses 1 through 15. And this is where Jesus has been arrested and he goes before Pilate and, and try to feel what Jesus is feeling as he's rejected on this day. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up, to, came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, to release one of the prisoners. Do you want me to release to you king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
Now, it's hard for me to even imagine what it felt like to hear that many people shouting your name to be crucified. They know who you were, and for three years you've been walking all over this region, healing people, teaching people, showing compassion that people had never experienced before, and you hear people saying, crucify him. Why? Knowing that in only in a few days ago, people were shouting, Jesus, you're the man. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember on Palm Sunday before Jesus was crucified on Good Friday? They were shouting, blessed is he. What happened? What caused them to reject Jesus so quickly? Well, he wouldn't become what they wanted him to become. Well, the first thing, one of the reasons they rejected him is that he claimed to be God himself. This claim infuriated the religious leaders. And in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, we see Jesus going before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who are supposed to be pointing people to God. And they actually are putting God, think about this, y'all, they are putting God on trial himself. And they don't even realize it. But let's look what Matthew says in chapter 26. Starting in verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. Can you imagine saying to God himself, you are worthy of death because you've not become who I wanted you to become. And this is crucial to our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Christ claimed that he was God was a bold statement then, and it is a bold statement in 2022, y'all. It will always be a bold statement. And the high priest was absolutely correct in saying he was blaspheming if he wasn't the Messiah, if he wasn't God's son. So in deciding what you and I will do with Jesus, we must deal with his divinity, that he really was God and really was man. I know that's hard to get our head around. But C.S. Lewis accurately describes our options in dealing with this question. This is what he said. Either this man was Jesus and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Think about that. There are many places in the Gospels that record Jesus claiming to be divine. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. I forgive your sins. And the, the religious leaders lost their minds. Who are you? 
Are you in the place of God again, not recognizing He was God? In Matthew 16 and in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is in this region called Caesarea Philippi. And he's sitting with his disciples and he says, Who do the people say? We rub shoulders with these people every day. What do y'all hear people saying about who I am? And they said, some say Elijah or one of the prophets. Some say maybe John the Baptist come back from the dead. But he says, who do you say I am? What about you? And Peter was the one who, who spoke up and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And that is what we say here. Whenever someone comes to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, we repeat that good confession that Peter made. And it's difficult to understand how this truth that, that was God became flesh. Somehow Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. And that's hard for us to grasp. So where do you and I stand on this? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is the most important question that you and I will ever ask. Y'all, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a preacher and that's what i got to do on Sunday. Is rattle people's cages. No, literally... Our eternal destiny depends on what we do with that question, how we answer that. It really does. It really does. And I want us to consider for a minute the, a minute the following things that show uh, Jesus as to who he really was, the Son of God. His complete fulfillment of prophecies. Think about all those prophecies. Hundreds of years in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, there were all these prophecies that the Messiah would do and look like this, all these things. And in the fulfillment of those prophecies, they identified Jesus as the Son of God. And these fulfilled prophecies are, are, are very convincing, like fingerprints or DNA studies. Prophecies like he would be born to a virgin in a specific place called Bethlehem. He would be crucified with robbers on either side. Before crucifixion had even been thought of, being buried in the tomb of a rich man. These prophecies reveal the divinity of Jesus. But maybe you're a bit cynical, and I know we can all be that way, or maybe skeptical is a better word. Yeah, but what if these fulfillments were all staged? I mean, Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, so maybe he could have staged these things to make them look like he was fulfilling them. Think about the, the Messiah will ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. How hard is that? Jesus just went and got a donkey and rode in there and go, look, I'm the Messiah. It's true that a few of those prophecies, sure, Jesus could have fulfilled in an intentional way, but not many. For example, the prophecy said that he would be born to a virgin in Bethlehem. How was Jesus going to do that? How could you intentionally be born to Mary and be born in Bethlehem when you weren't even born yet? Think about the prediction that said he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. How would he set that up? The prophecies that said he will be of the line of David or the prediction that men, like we talked about last week, would gamble at the foot of the cross for his clothes after his death. And how could he have faked the prophecy that the Messiah will perform miracles when he was constantly surrounded by people who were trying to disprove him and who he was? But a cynical mind also thinks, yeah, but what if the fulfillments were just a coincidence? A coincidence that that many prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in one time, in one place, and in one man. That can't be a coincidence. Peter Stoner, who's a science professor, worked with 600 students to calculate the mathematical probability of several Old Testament prophecies 
being fulfilled in just one person. He concluded that the chances of Jesus fulfilling 48, and there are more than 48, but 48 of those prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, I'm not a math nerd because I'm too dumb, but that's a lot of zeros, isn't it? That's huge. That can't be a coincidence. And Lee Strobel wanted to understand that number, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So he did some research and he called a scientist and says, how small is an atom? And the scientist says, an atom is so small that it takes a million of them lined up to equal the width of a human hair. Think about that for a minute. Then Strobel asked, has anybody calculated the approximate number of atoms in the entire known universe? And amazingly, there's some nerds that have. Now, I say nerds with all due respect, y'all, because I, I wasn't good at science, and I was always enamored with the kids who could do that and can figure that out, math and science. But anyways, based on those numbers, Strobel concludes that the odds of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies would be the same as trying to find one specific predetermined atom among a trillion, 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 billion atoms spread out over our universe. I can't even, I'm out of zeros. So the, these prophecies are like a fingerprint that could only match the Messiah, Jesus. Only him. Jesus fulfilled them all. We must also consider when we think about Jesus as his uncompromised character. No matter what situation Jesus was in, he kept who he was in his character of God. No matter how hateful and evil people were to him, he still remained and stayed in that uncompromising character. His miraculous power. He showed that power not only in healing people, but walking on water, changing water to wine. And early in his ministry, you remember, no matter how many times he did this, Jesus was not trying to... Uh, you know, get attention. As a matter of fact, most of the times when he heals somebody, he goes, don't tell them. Don't tell anybody what just happened. And they would, of course, go out and tell everybody. But he had this miraculous power that showed he was God. People said, who is it that can do these things? His avoidable death. You realize Jesus at any point could have said, I'm not going to go through with this. I don't want to do this. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, he said, Lord, if there's any way this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus speaks of his life in John's Gospel in chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down of my own accord. Jesus willingly laid down his life. His resurrection being verified by so many different things shows that he, in fact, was God. In Acts 2.32, Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact, Peter said. I saw him dead. I saw him put him in that tomb dead, and then I saw him, and I touched his hands, and I ate dinner with him on multiple occasions. I know Jesus really resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people alive during that 40 days. And you remember, and I know some of us are skeptical, or we have friends or family that are skeptical. Thomas was like that. All the other disciples had seen Jesus. And he goes, well, that's good for you. But until I see him and touch his hands and his side, I'm not going to believe it. And I understand Thomas' thinking. We're skeptical sometimes. But then Jesus appeared to him and says, you want to touch me? Right here. You see it? You want to put your hand in my side, Thomas? And Thomas did, and what did he say? My Lord 
in my God. He was convinced, a convincing proof. And his faithful followers show also, why would they die for a deliberate lie? When Jesus died, nearly all the disciples, they abandoned him. They ran. They were afraid. They were confused. I thought you were God. I thought you were God's son. How are you letting yourself be crucified? And now they're probably going to crucify us when they find us. Everything seemed lost, but after the resurrection, everything changed for all of those followers. They boldly and courageously told of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not only that, but reliable history besides the Bible. Josephus and others tell us that the closest followers of Jesus were fully convinced that he was God. They not only taught it, y'all, but they died for it. Do you realize that? Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia later. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during a missionary trip. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Why would those guys die if they really knew that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? They did. Obviously, they were the people that knew him best, and they were fully convinced. Could it have been that they conspired to fabricate a myth about the resurrection and go, okay, guys, let's just keep this lie going, even if we have to die for it? No. Throughout history, a lot of people have died for the lies they really believed were true, but no one dies for a lie they know is a lie. And so these guys believed it. They didn't just believe it, they knew it. They experienced it. The risen Jesus, they saw him, they ate with him. They experienced it, and they were so convinced that nearly all of them died. But another reason why many people reject Jesus is this, is that Jesus didn't fit what they wanted in Jesus' time, and sometimes we reject him today because he doesn't fit what we want in our time. The Jewish people have been looking and longing for a Messiah, and they begin to look for someone who could save them in their immediate circumstances. They were looking for a savior who was going to bring peace and overthrow the Roman government. Many of the people rejected Jesus because he didn't fit their Messiah mold. The Messiah should do these things and Jesus isn't, so we don't want him anymore. His kingdom was spiritual, not political. And y'all, we do the same things today. We think there's some political leader out there that's going to lead us into some utopia world. Has it happened yet? It's not going to happen. And please don't hear me saying you shouldn't vote and you shouldn't do your research on candidates. But man, in the last few elections, people lose their mind thinking that a human is going to solve the world's problems. We have a Savior who has solved our real problem, and that's sin. But people didn't just want that. They wanted somebody to make things better right here. They wanted him to bring a power that would conquer their enemies. And Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Herod's going, I mean, uh, Pilate's going, What are you talking about? All he knew was political power as a puppet in the Roman you know, power struggle. He didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. 
Jesus also was rejected because he didn't keep the religious traditions. He allowed the disciples to eat grain without washing their hands. He healed people on the Sabbath. He was determined to show people that a relationship with God was not about following rules. It wasn't legalism. It was about an authentic relationship with God the Father, knowing him, praying to him personally. And he associated with the wrong people. Jesus willingly accepted those in society who were outcasts, who were rejected, Christ's economy of things were that misfits mattered just as much as the elite did. The last will be first and the first will be last. And people said, in what society, Jesus? And Jesus said, in thy kingdom. That's how it is. He invested time with them, the social misfits, the immoral, the uneducated, the dishonest. He was a threat to the authority of the religious leaders. On two separate occasions in the Gospels, we read about Jesus going into the temple and they're selling all these things and saying, oh, you need to make a sacrifice. Oh, and you brought your own lamb. Guess what? It's not good enough. But we just so happen to have one over here that cost a lot of money. And they were cheating people. And Jesus saw this and he went in and he overturned the table and said, you have made my father's house of worship into a den of robbers. And the religious leaders would constantly try to trap Jesus with some question that they they thought was impossible for him to answer. If he says this, then we've got him. But if he says this, then we've got him too. We've got him. And they'd go and ask Jesus this question, and Jesus would make them go away looking foolish and humiliated. And another reason Jesus was and is rejected is this. Jesus demands life change, doesn't he? He demanded life change In that setting in the first century, he has demanded life change throughout history. In John 8, we read the story of Jesus was teaching a huge crowd and the religious leaders, as tactful as they were, come in with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. That seemed appropriate in the middle of a teaching session. Let's bring in a woman who was caught in adultery. Where was the guy? And they threw her at Jesus' feet and go, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What are we going to do? And if Jesus said nothing, then he said, well, you don't believe in the law of Moses. But if you show her grace and, 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 or if you say, no, we need to throw stones at her, then all this grace you talk about is just nothing but talk. Jesus, what are you going to do? And you remember Jesus stooped down and he wrote something in the ground. And we don't know what he wrote. But ultimately he said, whoever's without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone to kill her. And one by one, they dropped their stones and they walked away, didn't they? And then Jesus, after they had all left, she goes, where where are your accusers? And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. But then he said this, go and sin no more. You see, there was grace. There was grace. Grace was given, but Jesus expected there to be life change now. When grace, when we realize how awesome grace is, to forgiving our sins, then there has to be life change. And Jesus always expected that. Most people are all for Jesus as long as following Him doesn't require a change in their lifestyle or in their thinking or in the way they do things. The people loved Jesus as long as He was making the lame walk and the blind to see. But the crowds had a way of thinning out when Jesus would say things like, if you really want to be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. And they're like, Yeah, I've seen those people hanging on the cross. No, thank you. And people left. Jesus was talking about some serious cost of discipleship. And a lot of people left him the closer he got to going to the cross. And Jesus looked at his disciples one day when some people literally walked out in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And he says, what are y'all going to do? Are you going to leave too? 
And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You are the son of God and you have the words to life. Where else are we going to go? He believed. He didn't understand all of it, but he believed and knew that Jesus was the son of God. He spoke the whole truth, not just comfortable truth. And as a result, many people rejected him because they didn't want to make that change necessary. People who reject Jesus often hide behind things like spiritual smoke screens. They may say things like, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Well, usually if you ask anybody that says the Bible's full of contradictions, ask them to name five. And usually they can't come up with one or two. Or they may say things like, the Bible is, or the church is full of hypocrites. And I go, you're right, come join us. We can always use one more. Because we are. We are sinful, hypocritical people, aren't we? And we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to say we follow Jesus, but we're going to sin. But we keep coming back together because we know that's not right. That's not who God created us to be, and he died to make us who we're supposed to be. And eventually it becomes clear people aren't really rejecting Jesus because of some intellectual objection or some theological hang-up. The reason they're really rejecting Jesus is because they don't want to make the changes that come when Jesus is truly the Lord of your life. And that's hard. And rejection hurts. And we've all experienced the truth of that. But the cross may look like to the world that Jesus was rejected. But Jesus hanging on that cross said to me and you, you are not rejected. Do you realize that? Do we realize that? Jesus dying on that cross for you said you are not rejected. Even in your sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died on that cross. And the cross is the ultimate symbol of being chosen. God hasn't rejected you. In fact, through Jesus, he accepts us and welcomes us. Scripture tells us that we love God because what? He first loved us. He was the first one. So back to this nonsense in the grand scheme of life. I love baseball. I love sports. And it can be a, a great distraction, can't it? But man, I think about what's going on in, in Ukraine right now and just the whole, well, what's next? It's scary, isn't it? We need to know who the real Savior is. And you know what? It doesn't really matter whether we reject Freddie Freeman as a as one of our favorite players or not, that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of life. There's a much more important question. It's a question that Pilate asked that day in front of the crowd. He goes, what are you going to, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And see, that's what we try to do. We said, you know, I, I, you need to decide. No, Pilate had to decide. And what did he do? He decided to not decide. So he goes, I'll let y'all decide. But he made a decision that day to reject Jesus as well. I'm washing my hands of this. It's on you and your, your children. But you know what? He rejected Jesus that day. How will we answer that? What will you do with Jesus? Reject him and choose something else in life? There's a lot of things in life that we are told are as good or better or will bring us satisfaction and salvation. But they won't. So we have to reject him and choose something else or accept him as Lord and Savior. And we have to die to our old life, y'all. Do you realize that? That's what Jesus said. You have to die to your old way of life. And that's not easy. That means I'm burying it. I'm not just going to put it away in a room somewhere and bring it out when it's a party. No, you die to that old way of life. And when we die, and that's what baptism is symbol of, is dying to our old way of life and resurrecting into a new life in Christ. We are still the same unique person that God has made us, but now we have buried that old sinful life, and now we are a new creation in Christ. 
being who God always wanted us to be. So you can choose him today or you can go with the crowd or you can simply do nothing. You can stare, say, hey, I, I wouldn't have yelled for Jesus to be crucified that day, but I wasn't going to say that he was my savior either. I'm just going to play it safe. Not making a decision is making a decision, y'all. When you don't choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're saying you're not my Lord and Savior. So this morning we want to offer an opportunity that maybe you need to surrender and accept that amazing grace today. God did not reject you. He has accepted you. He will never reject you. He has wedged the door of eternity open with Jesus' dead and resurrected body. Do you realize that? Eternity is open for you to accept that. So we're going to offer that opportunity this morning. If you're here today and would like to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we'd love to give you that opportunity. If you would like to be baptized this morning, we can do that as well. If you're looking for a church home, we offer that. Y'all, we are hypocrites. We are an imperfect church, and we're going to go out and say one thing and go out and do another, but we come back together and say we know who we really worship, though. It's not the church. It's not the preacher. It's not... Uh, you know, the, the worship band, it is Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded of that. And we're going to go into a time of communion in just a little bit. Uh, Mike mentioned if you didn't get those uh, communions, uh, little kit when you went out, you can sneak out and during this next song. But we're going to uh, take communion together. Jesus asked us to never forget how much he loved us and what his death on the cross cost. And he told us to do that by taking a little piece of bread that represents his body that was crucified for us in a little cup of juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed. So we're going to do that. You don't have to be a member of our church. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to be a part of that this morning. But the band's going to come and uh, worship team lead us in a song to prepare our hearts. And if you have a decision this morning, we ask that you come forward and I'll do my best to walk you through it. So let's all stand and prepare our hearts for communion.